from the book of Luke. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus said. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. The word of the Lord. All right, good morning. Uh, I'd like to ask the ushers uh, to come down to receive the offering as we uh, jump into the message today. If you're a guest with us, please feel no obligation to put anything in the basket as it passes. This is simply for uh, our members and attenders uh, to give back to God what he's given to us. Um, as Justin just mentioned, we are in a mini-series of last week and this week on our restore rhythm at Waterstone, which is God, seeing God's kingdom come into the world. And so we're talking about engaging globally. That's what Nick preached on last week. And today I'm going to be talking a little bit about engaging locally. Um, but before we jump into that, uh, I just I have to say um, I... I I'm a little frustrated with some of you because uh, a few weeks ago, actually it was a couple months ago, I preached on the Beatitude series on peacemaking. And in that series, probably don't remember much about it, but there was one illustration I used where I said that when my siblings and I, we would fight, uh, my parents, they would make us hold hands and walk around the block. And if that didn't work, they'd put a t-shirt on us and make us go around the block that way. And I've had so many kids from our church come up to me over the last couple months angry at me because they knew that story from when I was a youth pastor and you're making them do it now and they blame me for it and they are so mad at me for it. In fact, a couple of weeks ago, I was talking to a middle schooler and he was saying his parents, made, I'm not going to call anyone out, I'm not going to name any parents, but he was saying that his parents are making him do this. I was like, well, how's it going? Does it help you get along with your siblings better? Like, does it stop the fighting? And I kid you not, he just, he looked at me 
He sighed, shook his head, and just walked away. He wouldn't even talk to me. So, uh, your children hate me now. Thanks for that. Uh, It's wonderful. And uh, yeah, they're so mad. And so I thought about that this week because I was going to share another parenting strategy that my my mom used when I was a teenager, but I'm kind of scared to because I don't want kids more mad at me than they already are. Uh, I'm going to get like attacked at VBS this summer or something. So, uh, but the the strategy that, that my mom had so I, when I was growing up, I was a really, really heavy sleeper. Uh, like, so actually I'm still a heavy sleeper, but I'm just an adult now, so I know how to get out of bed. But as a teenager, I, I struggled so much getting out of bed in the morning uh, because it, it wasn't that I didn't hear my alarms or that I, I just like slept through, but I, I, I was really good at finding that comfortable spot um, in the bed. You know what I'm talking about when you wake up and, and the covers are just right, the temperature's perfect, and like the pill is just where you need it, and you're too comfortable, you have no willpower to get out of bed. That was like my entire high school like life. And so my mom, she would try to help me get up. So she bought me an alarm clock. She would come in and then try to wake me up and shake me awake. And it just, nothing worked. I was too comfortable. And so she developed a new strategy uh, that was, she would just walk into my room uh, when it was time for me to get up and she would spray me uh, with a spray bottle in the face, which she got from how we treated our cat when the cat got in places that the cat wasn't supposed to go. That's what she, she treated me like our house cat. So she would spray me in the face and if the spray didn't work, then she would just take the lid off and dump it on me. And at the time, I hated it. Now looking back, it's hilarious to think that that's what her strategy was. But she thought, man, if he's comfortable, I just have to introduce a little discomfort into his life to wake him up, right? And uh, so I swear, if I get kids coming to me saying, my parents are spraying me with a spray bottle, uh, I'm coming after you. So <laughs> the, uh, the thing about it, though, is, is that no one likes to be uncomfortable, right? Like we all like and seek comfort. But sometimes discomfort is good for us. Sometimes discomfort shakes us awake. Sometimes discomfort moves us to where we need to be. I think the story that Madison just read, the story that we're looking at today is a story from Jesus that makes us uncomfortable. And I think it's designed that way. I think the story Jesus tells is charged in such a way that it's really meant to make us uncomfortable with how we see the world, how we see people in need that it causes us to step back and evaluate things in our life that we maybe feel really comfortable with. And so I'm gonna pray for us today as we jump into the story that I I, I think it's somewhat of a a dangerous and a bold prayer um, for myself and for you that that Jesus would make us uncomfortable today. As we look at this story, that he would shake us and that he would wake us up um, from our comfort and from our slumber. So let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, God, I I ask and I pray that... um, God, that you would make us uh, uncomfortable. God, I pray that uh, the areas of our life where, um, where you need to shake us, where we need to be woken up, uh, that you would do so today through the power of your Holy Spirit, through the words of, of your scripture, God. Um, I pray that as, as a church, we would be awakened to, to the kind of people that you have called us to be. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, so we're going to jump in. It's in Luke chapter 10. If you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn there. If you don't have your Bible, you can look it up on your phone very easily, or you can also follow along uh, on the screen. But Luke chapter 10, we're going to pick up in verse 25. And it says, on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, 
what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, we need to understand that this expert in the law, he's not a lawyer. He is not someone who, who is practicing law or knows like the, the Roman law of the day. He's a biblical scholar. So he's an expert in biblical law. It means that he probably has at least the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, and Numbers memorized front to back. He knows all of the, uh, of the law forward and backwards. He's an expert in the law who knows the Bible, knows scripture really, really well. So he comes to Jesus and he tries to test him with this question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, Jesus replied? How do you read it? Which, if you've ever been in a classroom and the teacher turns the question that you have back on you, you know how annoying that is. And if you've ever been a teacher in the classroom, you know how effective it is to help someone learn. So that's what Jesus does, turns the question back and says, well, how do you read the law? You're an expert. What do you think? And he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, you have answered correctly, Jesus replied, do this and you will live. It's interesting, he gets the answer right. This, this person coming to test Jesus, this person coming in, in a confrontation with Jesus answers in a way that Jesus says, no, you nailed it. That's, that's actually how I answer the law. The, the whole law can be summarized as love God with all that you are and love your neighbor as yourself. If only the story had stopped there for the man. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? And you can feel the tension in the text as, as he comes back at Jesus. He's like, okay, so who is my neighbor then? I got it right, but who is my neighbor? How do we define who the people are that we have to love in the world? I mean, where do you draw the boundaries, Jesus? What are the limits of who I have to love and who I don't have to love? Who falls inside that camp and who falls outside of it? I love the way the message translates that part, that the, looking to justify himself. The message says that looking for a loophole, looking for a loophole in who he has to love, looking for a way out of it. Because the reality is, I think that, that many of us you know, we come to this text and we kind of want to judge this guy like, oh man, what a chump. This dude's a jerk. I mean, he's like trying to figure out who he has to love and who he doesn't have to love. Like just love everyone, man. Just accept everyone. Why are you, why are you trying to decide who's worthy of your love and who's not worthy of your love? But I don't actually think that this guy is that, that much of a jerk. I think he's just human. I think we all try to limit and boundary the people in our lives that we have to love. We all wanna figure out, okay, who is inside my camp? Who is my neighbor? Who looks like me? Who acts like me? Who thinks like me? Those are the people that I like, that I'll love them. We all try to boundary and limit. Like, he's not a bad guy. I think he's just like you and me. We all try to limit and boundary God's love. I was convicted about that this week because... Um, so sometimes people, they, they interact with me and they think that I'm an introvert, um, and, and, and that's fine. I'm actually not an introvert. I'm an extrovert. Uh, but the truth is uh, about myself, people sometimes think I'm an introvert because while I'm an extrovert, I don't like very many people. <laughs> um, I just, uh, you can ask my wife. I'm really judgmental towards a lot of people. And so I, all the time I interact with people and I'm like, you know what? I don't like that person very much. So since I don't like them, I really don't have to love them or spend time with them or interact with them. And I, and I create boundaries around who I'm supposed to love. And I try to limit 
who God has called me to love. And I'm definitely gonna regret sharing that with you guys later because <laughs> just even last night, Jay and Renault, Larry's wife came up to me, he's like, I'd ask you to dinner, but I know if you say no, you don't like me, so don't wanna be rejected. So <laughs> it's not what it means. I just, I, yeah, so <laughs> I'm gonna move on. <laughs> but we all try to limit <laughs> the people that God has called us to love. That's what this guy is doing. And what I think Jesus is, is, is showing us in this interaction with the, the expert in the law is that this is a person, he knows the Bible really well. He is a person who gets the answers right. I mean, he's the one in Sunday school class who his answer shoots up and he's like, this is what scripture says. And Jesus is like, yeah, you got it right. But what should make us uncomfortable about the expert in the law is while he knows scripture really well and gets all the answers right, he doesn't know Jesus at all. And see, I think it's very possible for us to, to know scripture, to know the Bible, it's possible for us to, to come and to be in Bible studies and, and, and know scripture and, and memorize verses and still not know Jesus. Just knowledge of the Bible does not make us know Jesus. And I think it should make us uncomfortable because the, the fact is that if we know Jesus, we don't look for the loopholes in who we're supposed to love. When we know Jesus, we don't look for, for the outs or we don't try to create boundaries or limits on who God has called us to love. And the, the expert in the law, he misses it because it's very possible to think rightly about certain issues and to know your scripture and to still miss the heart of Jesus. And so where are you looking for a loophole in love? Are you uncomfortable yet? Because I am. So... The man asks this question and there's tension because he's pushing back against Jesus. Who's this man I'm supposed to, or who are the people I'm supposed to love? Who are the people I'm supposed to, to show this neighborly love to? And Jesus does what anyone does when a really tense conversation is going on. He tells the most racially and socially charged story he could tell. I mean, it's like you're sitting around at a family gathering and everybody's disagreeing on something and to cut the tension and try to ease it, you're like, so who's everybody voting for next year? Right, like that's what Jesus does here. It doesn't cut the tension, it raises it. And so he tells this story that is so socially and racially charged. He says, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. When he was attacked by robbers, they stripped him of his clothes, beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. Now, okay, I, I, at this point, I kind of feel sorry for the guy because he's like, who's my neighbor? And Jesus is like, let me tell you a story. There's a man who's walking down a road, he gets stripped, beaten, left for dead, like, whoa, Jesus, like, whoa, that escalated really quickly. I was just asking who I'm supposed to love, and now you're telling me about someone who's like murdered almost. And then it says, a priest happened to be going down the same road. Good news, a priest. But when he saw the man, he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. And so too, a Levite, when he came to the place and he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So who are the priests and, and who are the Levites? What is, what is their purpose in the story? Well, the priest and the Levite, I think it's interesting that those are the two people Jesus uses because the, the priest and the Levite, they're basically the ones who are in charge of temple worship. 
of all the synagogue worship. So they're the ones who are in charge of making sure the sacrifices go well. I mean, it's essentially like a pastor and a worship pastor. Um, so it'd be like myself and Justin being like the, the people in the story. The people who are in charge of like knowing how to make worship happen, making sure all the right people are in the right places for worship, that, that people come to the right times for worship, that, that the right events and right festivals happen. They're the experts who know how to worship God in order for God to continue blessing people. And to put it another way, they're the people who are really, really, really good at going to church. They're the people who show up to church on Memorial Day weekend, even though they could be in the mountains. I mean, they're the people who know when to raise their hands and when to bow their heads. They're the people who know when to come up for communion and when to let their kids go to, to children's service. They're the people who are well aware of all the rituals and customs of worship. And yet, when they see a man half dead on the side of the road, they pass by on the other side. They leave him to be. And often we come to this story and we say, well, why would they do that? What was their motivation? And we often talk about how, well, they're these, these religious leaders. They're the people who are in charge of purity. And so, of course, like, if you touch a, a dead body, then you're going to become impure. So they're not allowed to do that. And, and that might be part of what Jesus is getting at, that they take the law so seriously that they, they miss what, what God is doing. But I actually think there's more going on in the story. I think Jesus is leaving this story, their motivation, open-ended. I, I think he's leaving the motivation for why they pass by the, the person who's on the side of the road, beaten and bloody, open-ended, because it's as if Jesus is saying, you fill in the blank. Why would you not stop? Why might you keep going? He's forcing his listener to ask and interact with the story. So I'm actually gonna ask you to do the same thing. Uh, what is a reason that you might have for, for, for someone passing by someone on the side of the road? Feel free to shout it out if something comes to you. Um, what's that? Too busy. Too busy, absolutely. It's gonna take a lot of time. This man is half dead. You know how much time it takes to make someone not dead? Like, it's gonna be inconvenient. <laughs> it takes a lot of time. Yeah, absolutely. They, they're traveling. They got places to go, people to see. Like, nah, I can't stop. Too much time. Okay, what else? Fear. Fear, absolutely. Wow, that was awesome. Both of you at the same time, fear. Yeah, 100%. I mean, this man, he's half dead. What if the people are, are still nearby? They didn't finish the job. What if they, they attack me? Or, man, what if, what if this man is actually just pretending to be hurt and wounded? And he's actually trying to lure us to help him, and then the robbers are going to attack and take us down. I mean, safety, security, absolutely. Other reasons, what, what can you think of? Why might someone not stop? Cost, absolutely. It's gonna cost time, energy, money. Yeah, cost. What else? Someone, yeah, not my responsibility. Someone else could do it. And what's more, I don't even know if I know how to make someone not half dead. Like, I'm not capable of healing and binding their wounds, and I'm not a doctor. Like, wait until someone who actually knows what, I might just make it worse, right? Or what about just being overwhelmed? Where do I start? Like this man has so many problems, broken bones, bruises, blood. Like I, I just feel overwhelmed at even knowing where to start. What about deserve? I mean, what if this, this man, why was he traveling by himself on a dangerous road anyways? And it's kind of his fault that this happened to him. Like, or, or, or he just deserves like what happened to him. He, he can get himself out of this mess because he got himself into it. I mean, the list of reasons why we could come up with why we shouldn't stop is a grocery list long. 
There's so many reasons. I was with the 20s and 30s group on Thursday night. And if you're in uh, that age range, 20 and 30, I would highly recommend hanging out with Luke and Jansen and their group. They have a ton of awesome stuff this summer. But I was talking with them about this passage and I asked them that same question. And they, they came up with a lot of the same ones that you did. But my favorite one was a, a girl at the end of our conversation. She said, sometimes people are just selfish and you don't want to help people because, because you're just selfish and you'd rather take care of your own needs. And there's so many reasons why we don't stop. But I think the biggest reason why the priest and the Levite don't stop to help this man is because while they are really good at going to church, they do not understand what God desires from his people. What should make us uncomfortable is the people who lead worship and are really good at at worshiping God and and raising their hands at the right moments and, and, and praising him. Those people in this story are the ones who miss the heart of God. And and it's really possible to be people who are good at going to church and still miss Jesus. It's still possible to be really consistent in your attendance and still miss out on the heart of Jesus. And I think there are some of us who are in that category. There are some of us who are really good at showing. I mean, after all, like, no joke, you guys are here on Memorial Day. I thought it was going to be empty, right? Like, you guys are good at coming to church. And yet, do we miss the heart of God? Do we miss the people in need in our lives who Jesus has called us to? Do we see the person on the side of the road and just pass by? There are so many broken and hurting people in this world. Are we so consumed with just showing up and being at church that we miss the people who are in need? I also think there there are some of us in this room who you're actually not very good at going to church. And and in fact, you're kind of just exploring the faith and trying to figure out, man, is this Jesus thing for me? And the reason why you're having so much trouble figuring out whether or not you wanna be a Christian and a follower of Jesus is because of stories like this. Stories of priests and of Levites, of religious people who don't do anything but go to church and dress nicely and talk the right way. And you're confused, like, is that actually what this Jesus character is all about? And so you see people that that claim to follow Jesus and they look like the priest and the Levite who just passed by and it repels you. I think Jesus is actually there with you. And I, I think he's saying, I get it. Religious people frustrate me too. Like my people are, are, are supposed to do more and be more. And so we have to ask, are we like the Levite and the Samaritan? Do we just pass by? Do we ignore the people in need? And so Jesus, he continues the story. And he says, this is where the, the, the racial and social charge picks up. Because he says, but a Samaritan. I mean, this would be like Jesus talking to a room of conservatives and saying, there's a man who's beaten and bloody, and then all of a sudden a liberal comes to help. And all the conservatives in the room are like, oh, no, you know the liberals just make things worse, right? Or vice versa, talking to a group of liberals and saying, oh, and then a conservative comes along. Oh, man, they don't know how to help people. I mean, the the tension would build because he's talking to a room of Jews and he makes their enemy. He says that he's the one who comes, a Samaritan, and you're expecting him to make the situation worse. And yet it says, as the Samaritan traveled, came where the man was, saw him, he took pity on him. He took pity on him. This word pity, it's a a really strong word, and you've probably heard it talked about before. It's this word that it, it causes like a visceral reaction. It's almost like an involuntary response. You're so consumed with compassion for someone and their circumstances that you have to do something about it. 
Interestingly enough, this word, um, this pity is used more to describe Jesus's emotional life than any other word in scripture. It says that he has compassion on people. And that's what this man has. He, he has compassion on these people. And I was thinking about that, like how to, how to kind of get grasp like what the idea is behind this word, because it's a really powerful word. And have any of you ever, ever heard of the term cute aggression? Anyone? Okay, so you may not have heard of the term, but you've probably definitely felt the sensation. So cute aggression is where you see a really cute picture of, a, of a, uh, a baby puppy, or maybe you're interacting with a baby puppy, or an actual baby, and you're so overwhelmed with how cute it is that you kind of get aggressive towards it and you wanna like, I just gotta squeeze it, it's so cute. You gotta pinch its cheeks, you, you, like, you wanna bite it. And you don't really wanna bite it, but like, you just wanna like nibble on it, right? Like, so my <laughs> wife is, she's about a month from having a baby. I'm well aware that this is gonna be our reality for like the rest of my life in about a month. But it's this idea that you are so consumed with how cute and adorable and, and so much affection for this, this object that you have to like, oh, you just gotta squeeze it and let it know how much you love it. That is kind of getting at what this word is describing, this involuntary response where you are moved to action. You have to do something about it because you're so consumed with, with this circumstances and the plight of this person, you have to step to it. So you can remember cute aggression. <laughs> so this man, he, he has cute aggression. He has this, this intense affection for this person that is hurt and wounded. And notice the good Samaritan, he doesn't stop to ask the man on the side of the road, are you my neighbor? Like, are you, are you, are you like me? Uh, do you vote like me? Do you look like me? Do you think like me? Like he doesn't stop to ask what the expert of the law asks. He's not trying to create boundaries or limits to who he's supposed to love. He sees a person in need and he's moved with compassion to that person. We have to ask ourselves, does, are we moved with compassion towards people in need in our world? And better question, why aren't we compassionate? Why don't we move towards those who are in need? Why don't we have that kind of response? Because that's who Jesus lifts up as the hero, the person who has pity and compassion. And he goes on, and he, not only did he have compassion, but it says in verse 34, he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, so he's now walking, brought him to an inn and took care of him. Not only is this man, this good Samaritan, moved with compassion, but he is moved to make contact with this person in need. He is moved to engage. He takes care of his wounds, he, he cleans him. You can imagine the, the situation that it's gonna be dirty, it's gonna be messy, and yet he chooses to make contact, to clean, to, to put him on his donkey, to walk. He makes contact with this person, and he doesn't do what the priest and the Levite do. He doesn't move to the other side of the road, he moves towards the man. He doesn't create distance. How good are we at creating distance between ourselves and people in need? I mean, how good are we at creating boundaries and, and space between the people in this world who are in need and ourselves? I mean, I've had conversations with people before where, where people in need start moving into the neighborhood and they say it's time to leave. I mean, how good are we at creating fences and building walls and trying to separate ourselves from the people in this world who need our compassion? Now this man, he doesn't stop to ask whether or not this person 
deserves it. He just moves towards him. Not only that, but he doesn't stop to ask if it's safe. He doesn't stop to ask if it's secure. It makes me really uncomfortable because every time I interact with a, a, with a population that I think I need to serve and, and they're often in need, I think, man, like what if this isn't safe for me? Maybe I shouldn't bring my wife there because what, what might they say or do to her? You see, what happens is when we create distance between ourselves and people in need, we are free to make assumptions about them. We're free to assume the worst. Oh, you know why those people are in need? Well, they're just not hard workers. Like they just don't know how to, how to pull themselves up by their bootstraps. Or are those people in that group, they're not safe. I mean, they, they're dangerous. So we feel free to make assumptions about people when we create distance between ourselves and them and to ask whether or not it's safe. But the Good Samaritan, he doesn't do any of that. He moves towards them, makes contact because of his compassion. And he's driven there by his love. He doesn't make assumptions. Francis Chan, he puts it this way, because he says this. Do we have that quote? Nope, we don't have that quote. He says, having faith often means doing what others see as crazy. Something is wrong when our lives make sense to unbelievers. I mean, if we can just be really honest, what this man does, moving to the person on the side of the road who's beaten and bloody, I mean, it is a foolish decision. It's stupid. Like, if you move to someone who's in that situation, you have no idea what might happen to you. And yet that's who Jesus lifts up as the hero, as a person who doesn't have care for his security, but just moves towards the man in need. So have we created boundaries and distance between ourselves? Have we made assumptions about people? Have we tried to, to, to fortify ourselves and isolate ourselves in the safety and security of our own homes and neighborhoods where everyone looks and thinks and acts like us and we don't have to interact with people who are in need? It's a question Jesus' story forces us to wrestle with. And to make matters even more uncomfortable, not only did this man take action to save the person he had compassion on, but he did so at great cost to himself time. It took him an entire day just to get the man to the inn. And then it says he gave two days wages. So he's inconvenienced now to the tune of three days. I mean, took energy and effort, dignity. He walked while the man rode on his donkey. He interacted with someone who was naked. I mean, it cost him in all sorts of ways. And yet, and yet, this cost, he doesn't stop to ask whether or not this person deserves it. See, in America, in our society, we like to, to stop and ask, well, does this person deserve my help? Is this a person who deserves my money or my time? And Jesus, he doesn't ask that question. He just says, is this person in need? It's not about deserve. And that makes us really uncomfortable because we don't want to give our time or our money to people who, man, what, what are they going to do with it after I give it to them? What, what, are, what are they going to do with this gift? And yet Jesus says the Good Samaritan, he, he at great cost to himself helps this person in need, not asking the question of whether or not this man deserves it, but just simply asking the question, is this a person in need? That's the person that I'm supposed to go to. And I think the, the, the point of this story, what Jesus is saying is that, who are we? 
Are we the Levite and the priest? Or are we the good Samaritan? Would we stop when we see someone in this situation? Because he, he goes on and he finishes this story and he says, the expert, or sorry, in verse 36, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? And the expert in the law replied, the one who did mercy on him. The one who did mercy. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. What's interesting about this story is that four times the same verb is used, do. So at the very beginning, the man comes and he says, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And then Jesus asks him the question back and he says, love God and love others. And Jesus says, do this and you will live. And then at the end of the story, Jesus asks, who was the one who was a neighbor? And the expert says, the one who did mercy. And Jesus tells him, go and do likewise. See, there's this whole part of this story that is built on action, built on doing. I think what Jesus is trying to do is he's trying to draw a distinguishing factor between people who, who know the right things, like the expert in the law, and people who do the right things. People who are good at going to church and people who do church. Because the truth is, Jesus has not called us just to know the Bible or to go to church. Jesus has called us to be the church and to astonish the world with our acts of love and compassion towards those who are in need. I mean, the whole premise of this story is that you can know the Bible and not know Jesus, that you can go to church and still miss God's heart. And Jesus is saying, do, go and do likewise. It's why at Waterstone, we don't just ask you to be a part of a Bible study or a small group. It's why we don't just ask you to come to church on a Sunday morning. It's why I have the job that I have, why, why they pay someone to be a missions and mobilization pastor, to mobilize the church, to get us outside of the walls of this building, to be the church, to do what Jesus has called us to do. It's why we ask people to, to volunteer at Nine Health Fair and to, to volunteer for a week at camp with foster kids or Royal Family Kids. It's why we have a program like Nightlights for families with special needs kids. It's why we have a food pantry that we ask people to volunteer and give their time to. Not because we wanna pat ourselves on the back and say, look at all these great programs we have, but because we believe that when you engage with communities in need, that you are actually experiencing the eternal life that God has for you, the life that he has promised us. It's why later in the summer, we're, we're launching a, 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 I don't know if you wanna call it a program or a day, whatever you wanna call it, but we're calling it Waterstone Serves. Where for an entire weekend, we're just gonna get out of the building and we're gonna go and we're gonna serve people in our community. We're gonna have four or five projects around the city and around Littleton where we are trying to engage with communities in need. Because we recognize that it is so easy for us, I do it too, to isolate ourselves, to, to create distance between ourselves and communities of need. And so we're trying to present opportunities to you that say, hey, like get outside and do. And so you've got that little card that, that, that you got when you came in and, and it just asks for your name and if you're interested in being a site leader for one of those sites and if you have knowledge of an organization or a cause that we should, we should be aware of, that we should move towards, something you're passionate about. Because we want this to be an ongoing rhythm in our church, not just a, a once a weekend thing, but, but throughout the year, several different opportunities where we choose to serve as a body together. And we'll have different times and different slots and different places available and the details will kind of follow, but we just wanna make you aware that that is why we care about this. It's because Jesus has called us to do. 
to be the church. And not only that, but Jesus says, go and do likewise. And I gotta be honest, I, I see so many people in our, in our context who are frustrated and tired of the faith that are just like, man, this, this is not for me. This doesn't have anything to do. This is, like, I don't get the whole point of following Jesus. Could I be so bold to say that maybe the reason why you are not getting anything out of your faith is because all you are doing is reading your Bible and going to church. That Jesus has called us to more. That he has called us to engage with the needy, to be the hands and feet, to bring his kingdom, to engage with people who are desperately in need of the love and compassion of others, who don't judge them on whether or not they deserve it, but just say, Jesus loves you, so do I. I mean, would that maybe get us closer to the eternal life that Jesus promises? He says that if you do this, you will live. And I'm not saying, please don't email Larry. I am not saying that if you do good acts, you're gonna get into heaven. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is that when we do acts of kindness and love and justice and mercy, that we experience more of the life that God has called us to, that we experience more of the abundant, full life. You wanna, you wanna experience the riches and the goodness of his grace and mercy, then dispense it on others. And maybe if you're tired and frustrated with your faith, get out and do. Because Jesus has called us to more than just coming and sitting in a pew on a Sunday morning or a Saturday night. When I see this, this call at the end to go and do likewise, I get so overwhelmed. Go and do likewise, like the Good Samaritan? All the reasons come to mind, the safety, the time, the cost, the energy, the, the, the deserve. I have all those questions that go through my head. Go and do likewise? On my best day, I struggle to love my wife that way, that sacrificially. You better believe if she was in this situation, I would help, but, but on most days, loving her sacrificially is hard, and I love her a lot, most of the time, right? Like, it's hard. Go and do likewise. How in the world do we go and do what the Good Samaritan did? There are so many problems in this world, so many people in need. How do we go and do that? How do we move past all of our questions and our doubts? I think it happens when you recognize that the, the hero in the story is not you and, or me. Yeah. The hero in the story is Jesus. Yeah. Jesus is the good Samaritan. Jesus is the one who, who didn't create boundaries of who God called him to love. Jesus is the one who didn't just simply say that I know God, but he actually went and did the things God called him to do. He was the one who moved and, and had compassion towards us, that, that moved to make contact with humanity by coming human. He was the one who was moved by this compassion to take action at great cost to himself, at great cost to himself to restore and heal us. And like the Good Samaritan makes the promise that he will return and make all things right one day. Amen. He is the Good Samaritan. And when you realize that Jesus did not stop to ask whether or not you deserve his grace or his forgiveness or his love or his mercy or his gift, but he simply gave it freely, then who are you or I to withhold that from others and to ask whether or not they deserve it? Jesus has called us a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, just as sacrificially love one another. May we, the people of Waterstone, be people who move to the world with compassion, to make contact with those who are in need at great cost to ourselves because we have a savior who has done that for us. May we be people like the Good Samaritan 
We don't choose to question whether or not people deserve our love or our time, our gifts, but move towards them because Jesus has called us to not simply go to church, but to be the church. May that be true of us. Heavenly Father, God, I ask this morning that just that simple prayer, God, that we would be the church. That Waterstone would be a a place known for its love and compassion for the the needy and the outsider. A place that, that doesn't stop, a place that looks crazy to the world, that doesn't make sense to those who don't know you. God, I pray that we would be a a community of believers who make much of you in the world and move towards those who are in need with all the love and grace and compassion that you move towards us with. I pray that you would make us uncomfortable. And it's in Jesus' name we pray.